Today's sermon text is from the book of Acts, the first chapter, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you. I think this is the first time that I'll be preaching the same text three weeks in a row. Uh, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, I want us to really internalize this. Um, as many of you know, as I've mentioned already, um, we are going to be moving to two services in September. Um, and there's some feelings associated with that. There's some excitement about the new things that are happening at our church. Um, and there's also some, maybe some negative feelings, some fear. Will I be able to see the people that I love seeing so much each week? Will, I, will there be people in my life that I don't get to see very much anymore? And so maybe there's some sorrow there. Um, and in answering those questions and helping to navigate through those feelings, what I wanted to do to launch this series on vision, before we get any, any further into the practicals of why God has us here, where, what we're going to do, our strategy for reaching this neighborhood and beyond, I wanted to bring us back to square one. What does it mean to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ? What does it look like? What is the meaning of it? Fundamentally, what idea should each of us go to when we think about being a part of a church? What should we think about that? What should our beliefs be? And so I want to jump back into Acts chapter 1 because this is my third week preaching this text, and I've got to finish it this time. So Acts chapter 1, we're going to jump right in. Uh, verse 1 in the first book, O Theophilus. Uh, uh, Luke is writing a man named Theophilus. And in the first two verses, he references a previous book that he's already written to Theophilus. That previous book is the Gospel of Luke. That's actually volume one. Volume two is the book of Acts. And so it's actually one big book, Luke-Acts. And so Acts is part two. And so Luke is reminding Theophilus of all the things that he wrote about in book one. And in book one, he wrote about all the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus taught. 
the miracles that Jesus did, but not just the miracles, the regular activities of Jesus, the customs of Jesus, the ways of Jesus. And he also wrote about, of course, the miracles and the fantastic demonstrations of Jesus. This is what all he wrote about in book one. And he says, I wrote about uh, that the book one ended with Jesus giving the apostles commands to do something. And the first two weeks, we talked a lot about the commands that Jesus' disciples or apostles were given once Jesus ascended from their midst. What were their marching orders? What were the apostles, the first members of the very first church called to do? And in short, he said this to them. You can read about this in Luke chapter 24. In short, the responsibility of the church is this, to proclaim repentance and forgiveness to every ethnic group on earth. Now remember last week, we talked about that word for nations. We sang about all nations praising God a while ago. And in the New Testament, what the word that is used there in the original language isn't just sort of an ambiguous, the word nation. It's actually a word that we get our English word ethnic, ethnicity or ethnic from. The idea is that God wants repentance and forgiveness proclaimed to every ethnic group on earth. And the implications of that are pretty clear to me. God loves every ethnic group on earth. He's willing to die for every ethnic group on earth. And God's goal, his vision, an unstoppable vision is going to be that one day he will set a table the marriage supper of the Lamb, the scriptures call it. And every ethnic group will be represented at that table. There will be no ethnic groups that will not be there because they were the wrong color or the wrong creed. Every single ethnic group will be there. Jesus will win Every nation, every ethnic group, every tongue, every tribe will experience the glory of Jesus' salvation. Anything that is in opposition of that is heresy. Anything that is in opposition of that is not just anti-gospel, it is anti-God. So anyone who says that the marriage supper of the Lamb is only for certain races and certain ethnic groups, and they happen to call themselves Christians, like, oh, some people on the news have been doing this week, they are not Christians. They are not Christians. That is not the legacy that Jesus desires his church to leave. Every ethnic group is cherished and treasured and loved and adored by Jesus. Everyone. Everyone. I asked last week if it was clear. I'm going to ask it again. Was that clear? Okay. I don't know why some preachers won't say that. That's crazy to me. That's crazy to me. It just blows my mind that preachers are afraid to say that. Um, So, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So for 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension, 
For 40 days, he was preparing the church for their God-given divine mission on earth. And he preached about one overarching theme, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Now, I know I spent a lot of time talking about this last week, so I'm going to briefly review today. Does anybody remember what the kingdom of God is? Anybody? Whose hair is that? Um, Does anybody remember the rule and the reign of God? You've got a great looking head, whoever that is. So the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God. That is the kingdom of God. Okay, now, remember, the kingdom of God is not just an abstract idea. It's not just data. The kingdom of God is a substance. Because the rule of God and the reign of God can only be adhered to if the Holy Spirit has entered into a person's heart and given them affections for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is only compelling to people who have been brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not just for people who are really smart and brainy. It's not for people who can scientifically figure out the mysteries behind Jesus' teaching. The kingdom of God is for anyone. No matter what your educational background is, no matter what your, your race is, no matter what part of town you're from, no matter what country you're from, the kingdom of God is for everyone, and anyone can have it that the Spirit has led them into, has given. That didn't make sense grammatically. Anyone can have it who have been brought to life by the Spirit. You get what I'm saying. So, so the kingdom of God is manifested not only in us, but through us, through us. It inhabits us. It inhabits us. Not only that, the kingdom of God manifests itself in a way that the character of the king begins to manifest inside of our lives. The character of the king. Humility, love, peacemaking. That's the character of the king. Willing to suffer for what is righteous and right, the character of the king. Not only does the kingdom of God inhabit us and manifest the king's character in us, but it also stirs real believers to become attendant to God's commands. That's what else the kingdom of God does. It doesn't make it automatic. We still have to learn to obey God's commands. But we have a growing desire and a zeal to obey Jesus, to live for Jesus, to live like Jesus. It not only does that, but it cultivates inside of us passions for our King. And it leads, it leads to an insatiable longing for the new creation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because it looks at this world and says, this world is not as it should be. This world should be different. This is not what God wants. And so we long for the new world, the new creation that Jesus will unstoppably create. These longings, as I said last week, guys, are all gifts from God. They're all gifts from God. You don't strive to get these longings. These longings don't happen because you read the Bible enough. These longings are gifts from God. And I chased that comment last week by saying, putting myself in your shoes, well, 
How do I get those longings? Exactly. But what do I do? Right. Give me some steps. I know. I know. But, but just get me started in the right direction. I, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. But what do I do? Just give me something, preacher. I guess I didn't earn my salary this week. I don't know what to tell you. Because the kingdom of God is, for many of us, in our individualistic, independent, I am the captain of my soul world, the kingdom of God is a call to submit to someone greater than us and for the first time have absolutely no control over that relationship. None. So we are invited into all those questions. We're invited to just carry those mysteries around and go, I don't know what this is all about. I don't know. I can't explain it. It's compelling to me. I want more, but I don't know what to do. Jesus is inviting us to be annoyed by that. He's inviting us to feel angst over that. Angst. We don't like those feelings. We want our questions answered so we can move on to the next phase, to the next section, to the next Beth Moore lecture. We want, we want it all. I love Beth Moore. If she was here, she'd be preaching. But uh, uh, we, we want answers, clear answers to all of our questions. And we don't like mystery. We don't like nuance. We don't like having to be patient and just let God have his way. This is the kingdom of God, my friends. He's inviting us into this. But he's not just inviting us to be irritated, annoyed, angst, sorrowful. He's inviting us to glory. He's inviting us, as Paul said to the Ephesians, he says, I was made a minister by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the riches of Jesus. The unsurpassing riches of Jesus, he says. He's inviting us into glory. He's inviting us into submitted, powerless, stupefying glory. I'm just being blown by the wind of the Spirit. Wherever he leads me is where I will go. That's life in the kingdom. And these longings are a gift from God. And what is this all about? That Jesus' intent for his people, the church, is so, so clear that his people would find our identity in the proclamation and the demonstration of the kingdom of God. This is our identity as a people of God. Powerlessness, questions, mystery, and joyous glory. Joyous glory. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about receiving the kingdom for a second because he continues on here in verse 4. He says, And while staying with them, while Jesus was staying with his disciples, his apostles, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he lifts up this contrast. John's baptism and spirit baptism. A baptism of water that John administered and a baptism of the spirit that Jesus administers. 
Why does he do that? Now let's remember, um, some of you may be well aware of the story of Israel, the story of the church, and so this is like Sunday school to you. Some of you may not know at all. Uh, Several of you have commented over recent years that you love it that I go back to fundamentals a lot. And honestly, I don't think I do that enough because there are so many people in our church, and I'm really happy about this, who really have very little biblical education, very little. And so I can't take anything for granted. And so there was this man named John the Baptist who showed up on the scene about 2,000 years ago. John the Baptist showed up because in ancient Jewish prophecy, there were words that were said, oracles, that there would one day be a coming Messiah, a deliverer who would lead Israel, but not only Israel, all the peoples of the earth into freedom. And before that Messiah comes, there will be a man who comes before him, a forerunner. John the Baptist is that forerunner. And the reason that John the Baptist came was so that he could help prepare the hearts of the Jews to receive their King Jesus. Because way, 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 way back, about, gosh, 1,400 years or so, Before John the Baptist came and before Jesus came, there was this man named Abraham that God chose. And he says, through your lineage, I will bless the whole earth. Abraham's lineage is the Jewish race. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, whose name was changed to, anybody remember? Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And those are the people, that's the people of God. But he didn't choose them because he liked Jews better than everybody else. He picked Abraham so that his family, who became the Jewish people, would bring the blessings of the gospel to every nation, every tribe, every tongue on planet earth. And so the Jews had to be ready for their Messiah because God was using them, raising them up to bring the gospel to all the parts of the earth. This is why in Acts chapter 1, they obsess over there being a twelfth person to fill the spot that Judas left. Because those 12 original apostles are a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel, the the representation of the 12 tribes of Israel who will, through the church and through all the converts and disciples they make, bring the gospel to the far ends of the earth. It's a beautiful picture of biblical theology that's just being unwoven page after page after page throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. One story, one story. And so John the Baptist comes and he preaches, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's on its way. The rule of God, the reign of God is on its way in a way that is, that's never been experienced before. You can live under God's power and God's authority in a way that is transformational, in a way that no person has ever experienced. But you've got to repent. You've got to get your hearts ready. Because the Jewish people at that time, their hearts and their ways were incompatible with the coming Jesus. They would surely reject Him. They would surely turn their backs on Him. They would surely not recognize Him as the long-awaited Messiah. This is our story, guys. Don't yawn through this. I know some of you just yawned. I'm not, I'm not picking on you. I'm really not picking on you. But I want you to hear this. So John the, Bab- the, John the Baptist, 
what he does is he leads these people through this visceral experience of being water baptized, something that's run of the mill for us, but something that was very new for these folks back then. And he takes them and he plunges them into the water and he tells them, stop sinning. Get your hearts ready for the Messiah. Now I want to be clear about something. This is not the baptism of salvation. These people were not converted and born again. That's not what was happening here. Jesus had not yet come. Jesus had not yet suffered. Jesus had not yet died. Jesus had not yet been resurrected from the dead. This was a baptism that prepared them to receive Jesus so that they could be saved. Y'all with me? Is this confusing? It's okay to say yes. Listen to it again. Um, Many times. Okay. I'm doing my best to try to tease this out. Because so many of us don't get this stuff. Okay. So the only way to receive Jesus, the Messiah, was to first recognize the depravity of their brokenness. You've got to start there. Now, I want to talk about that for just a minute. Because that's something that we have lost in our world. We're losing this. In C.S. Lewis, is my favorite author. Um, I cannot get enough of him. Every time I look at the front of one of his books and, and see like the, pro- the problem of pain written and uh, published in 1940, and I think that he died just a little over 20 years after that, I, think, I feel sad I love that man so much. He was taken away from us too soon in God's providential timing. But man, I wish he would have, I could have a few more books of his. But uh, C.S. Lewis, one of the great defenders of the faith, uh, one of the a prolific author in the 20th century. Um, in, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he talks about the loss of our feelings of shame and guilt and how bad that is for us, for our culture. Um, He's lamenting that. He's complaining about that. He says, even 2,000 years ago, the early preachers of the faith could take that for granted. Because even the pagan cultures that they preached to, they all had their unique and deeply flawed systems and rituals and sacrificial systems that helped them to face something that all people believed that they had, guilt. Everybody knew that they were guilty. Today, it's different. Many of us don't feel a lot of guilt today, and when we do, we quickly try to extinguish it or suppress it because that feeling is synonymous with something that's wrong, and we don't like to feel that. We don't like to feel that. There is a belief today that everyone who is born is born inherently good. And that if there are any impairments that we have in our soul, it's not because we are uh, uh, inherently impaired. It's because something bad happened to us. And so what we need is not repentance from sin, but it's healing from brokenness. Now, I believe that we all need healing from brokenness. I don't see these things. I'm not trying to create a false dichotomy here. We all need healing from brokenness. The brokenness and the impairments that we carry around, many of them have been given to us by people who harmed us. But every one of us, Christian scripture teaches us that we were born in a state 
in which our hearts were averse to God. We've got to hang on to that. I love how the sun's just brightening the room up. Here, keep thinking about the eclipse. And I'm like, is that the day Jesus is returning? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so, you would think by all the craziness around it. So, okay, a totally irrelevant aside on my part. So, um, so there's this assumption. There's this assumption that we are born really, really good people. And so what's happening is that over the years, shame and guilt, the feelings of shame and guilt are becoming an endangered species. And that's bad. And so C.S. Lewis, writing 70 years ago, is complaining about this. I wasn't aware of this 10 years ago. C.S. Lewis is seeing down the road 70 years ago, and in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says these words. A recovery of the old sense of sin is essential to Christianity. Now, what he doesn't mean there is the calloused, hardcore, fundamentalist preacher that you grew up with who preached fire and brimstone. That's not what he means by a recovery of the old sense of sin. He's talking about the idea that stretches back throughout human history that we are broken, that we are sinful creatures, that our hearts are opposed to God. What was preached in the first days of the church. Everybody okay? If your neighbor's sleeping, slap him in the face. Wake him up. Okay, do that. Just look at your neighbor and just smack him in the face. Okay? I know this feels like a lecture, but guys, bear with me, please. This is huge. A recovery of the old sense of sin is essential to Christianity. And Lewis goes on to say this, Christ takes it for granted that men are bad. He just knows they are. And that includes women too. Men and women are bad. He takes that for granted. And he says this, until we really feel this assumption of his to be true, we are part of the world that he came to save but we are not part of the audience to whom his words are addressed. Are you hearing this? Without a healthy sense of shame and guilt for my sin and your sin, we might hear Jesus' words, but he's not talking to us. He's not talking to us in the sense that we can enter into the kingdom because we don't feel like that's applicable to us. We all must be crushed by the weight and the sense that I am a sinner. I am deeply flawed. I am broken. I need Jesus. He says we lack the first condition for understanding the kingdom of God. What what he's talking about if we don't experience shame and guilt. Now, I know some of us in here are thinking, wait a second, I thought Jesus took our guilt and our sin upon himself. Yes, he did. Positionally before God, if you are a believer in Jesus, your legal standing before God Almighty is innocent. You are innocent. You are not going to be judged for the sins of your past, for the sins of your present or for the sins of your future if you believe and hold on to Jesus. You are innocent. 
As a matter of fact, everything righteous about Jesus has been applied to your account before God. So as John says in his epistles, we don't have to fear the day of judgment because perfect love casts out fear. Whose perfect love? Not mine. Jesus' perfect love. But that doesn't mean that we are still going to mess up, that we're we're not going to mess up anymore. We're going to blow it. We're going to hurt people. We're going to wound one another. And if we don't feel shame and guilt for the times that we trespass against one another, we are sociopaths. We should feel guilt for hurting people. Because when we feel guilty for it, we can go back and say, man, I'm really sorry I did that. Without guilt, there can be no reconciliation. So I want to talk, I'm talking here about the feeling of guilt, not the status, the position of guilt. If you follow Jesus, you are righteous. You are loved. You are treasured. You are adored. You are do- adopted. You belong to God and no one will ever take you from his hand. But we are still broken. And we are still going to hurt one another. And the kingdom of God, I would submit to you, is seen most visibly when I hurt you and you hurt me and we own it. We feel the guilt. We feel the shame. And we press into reconciliation. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's not a matter of if. It's when. So this is why he gives the Holy Spirit. In verse 6 through 6 and 7, he reminded, they said, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time that you're going to put Israel back at the top of the food chain? And Jesus, what does he say? He doesn't even answer it. He doesn't get caught up in end time theology. There's more important things to get hung up on. He doesn't obsess over who the Antichrist is. Who's the Antichrist? I thought it was the last president. Maybe it's this one. You know. Who is it? Is it the Pope? Is it, you know, I don't know. He He doesn't obsess over this stuff. I'm not saying it's not important to think about end time theology because it's in the New Testament. But Jesus didn't put us here to obsess over these theological, this theological minutia. He gave us a mission. He gave us a mission. And that's why by the end of this text, as I acted out last week, Jesus is ascending and these two men in white robes are standing there going, what are you guys looking at? He's ascending. He's gone. Get busy. Get, get going. So get to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Let's wait on the Holy Spirit. So that what? So what? So what? What does it say in verse 8? You've got a Bible right in front of you. It's, just, it's our, Acts 1, verse 8. What happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon you. Oh, there it is. Look at that. We, did you know we put verses on the screens? But I'll, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the, all the ends of the earth. So why does the church exist? For amazing pastoral care. Is that why the church is here? Should the church do that? Yes. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Should the church have a good worship? Yeah. But you know, churches that Ron and these guys are going to go visit, 
They don't have worship leaders. They might have a light bulb swinging in their sanctuary. I was preaching at a church in Sri Lanka eight years ago. And the dude had sticks for drumsticks. Not glossy, uh, Connecticut rapper looking sticks. Little, sorry. Anyway, so um, not, we're not talking real drumsticks you get at Memphis Drum Shop. We're talking sticks. They had tennis balls on the end of them. This is how they played drums in that church. And if you go to a Christian conference in America, they'll tell you there's no way you can build a church with that. That's a crummy drum set. You've got to have good drums. If you're going to grow, if you're going to break the 200 barrier, you probably ought to move away from sticks and branches to drumsticks. That's also in Augustine's, uh, I think the city of God. Um, The purpose of the church is God's mission to all the earth. Now, I know some of us are feeling some uneasy feelings about going to double services. And just in case nobody's like emailed me and complained about this, and I've not gotten a lot of feedback and a lot of negativity. Most folks are, are, are most, I would say most folks here in our church are like, you know, we, we need to go to two services because <laughs> I smell some BO on Sunday mornings. Uh, we, we ought to do this. And I think it's time because most of the folks that I'm talking to are telling me, yeah, we need to go to two services. <laughs> we just need to. Um, we're making space for our new friends. Friends we don't know yet. Now, I'll be honest with you, like I said in week one and last week, my greatest ambition for pastoral ministry is not navigating churches through double and triple services. I don't want to do that. I would rather pray, study Jesus' words. I would rather hang out with you and, and minister to you and preach God's word and not have to worry about this stuff. But it is what it is. I'm happy about it. I really am. I am happy that our church is growing. I am thrilled about that. But this is not what our mission is. Our mission is to expand the gospel all over our city so that every ear hears the proclaimed gospel of Jesus Christ. And the expectation should be... I feel like I'm giving the State of the Union address. The expectation should be that as people are coming to Jesus, that we are making room for them so that we can worship together. That's where we're going. This is part one of this series. Now, I want to talk for a moment about the Holy Spirit who was given to every believer. Every believer. We have got to move from theology to life. Because if those disciples who hung out with Jesus every single day for three years, you would think there's nothing else that they need. They are ready to take the world by storm. Jesus said, no, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you because you can't do this without the Spirit. And so implied in all of Christian living is this. I can't do this life without the Holy Spirit. I can't. And so I need to be growing in intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Right? 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 I'm talking to the five rows in the back. Right? Right. I see you. I see all of you back there. Okay, right. We all need to develop a growing intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Not just even to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and be effective missionaries in our culture and in our city, but so we can live for Jesus. 
so we don't sell out and compromise at work and our relationships, so we don't marry the wrong folks, so we don't make terrible decisions with our finances. We need to depend on Jesus and rely on Jesus so we don't blow it. We need Him. And so here's where I can give you some practicals, and I'm going to close with this today. Every believer has been given the Spirit upon conversion. The only way you can be saved is that the Spirit gives you affections for Jesus. You didn't come up with those affections on your own. The Holy Spirit did that. Every believer must rely on the Spirit. But this brings up the question. We are living in a secular society that is totally unfamiliar with spiritual things. Did you notice that none of the people in Scripture ever said, okay, when you pray, here's how you do it. I mean, Jesus said, here's what you say. But a lot of us who struggle in prayer, we just can't, our mind wanders, we can't stay focused, we struggle, we don't want to do it. Jesus didn't have to deal with that. The early apostles didn't have to deal with that because they were talking to a culture that was very spiritual. Good or bad, very spiritual. And so for a lot of us, we feel a lot of guilt and shame because we don't pray good enough. Now that's when a guilt and shame I don't think is appropriate because you're loved even if your prayer life is really, really crummy. God, God still loves you. But I want to challenge you to do some things that I think will lead to the transformation of your life. And I'm not overstating this. When I get through the first two points, you're going to say, oh, okay, here he is. That's no surprise. So I want to ask you to do me a big favor. Take your cynicism and just sort of scoot it out of the way for a second. And try to listen to these next few points like you've never heard this ever in your life. Hear it like you have never heard of Jesus or the church and you just got saved and you're like, okay, you're eager to grow. Here's what I'm going to tell you to do if you want to see real transformation in your life. One, be rooted in your local church. Be rooted. Now, I am not saying go to church services incessantly. That's not what I'm saying. Because we all know people who spent a lifetime in church who have not been transformed. I'm not talking about going to a bunch of church services. I am, but I'm not. Here's what I'm saying. I want you to adopt the posture that church is not a place that you go to get things from. But it's an ecosystem that you are a part of. You need to be an organism in the ecosystem of church. Now when I say church, I don't mean church services. I mean everything that church is. You are an organism in the ecosystem of church. And here's what I think you need to do. Come every Sunday. Write that down. Some of y'all aren't writing, some of y'all were writing and you didn't write that because you think you've got that already. <laughs> but if everybody who was a member here showed up, we would have to double the size of this room. So I want you to show up every Sunday. You cannot stay in step with what God is doing in your local church when you intermittently attend. It's not going to happen. You've got to be faithful to Sunday morning attendance. Now let me tell you a little secret about what's underneath everything we do on Sunday mornings. 
We don't care if Sunday mornings are awesome. I don't care. I used to care a lot. And it gave me deep anxiety and sadness and sometimes inappropriate happiness and glee. And I'm learning what Sunday mornings are all about. Going back to the beginning of the church, why did the disciples gather on Sunday mornings? To celebrate Easter. Well, that's only once a year, Chris. Yeah, that's later tradition. And we do that, and that's fun. I love Easter eggs and all that stuff. Love y'all's new clothes. It's great. (laughs) But the reason why the church elected to gather on Sunday was because Sunday was the day Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and they made it a habit to gather every single Sunday to remember the day that their Savior was raised from the dead and also long for that day when they will also be resurrected from the dead. They got together not to be wowed by the music. They got together not to be stimulated be, uh, more than they've ever heard from, any, from, from the best talking head preachers out there. Sunday morning talks weren't meant, meant to be TED Talks. They got together to worship Jesus. Period. How do you know we had a good Sunday? When we worship Jesus. I can crash and burn. As long as it's not heretical, I can crash and burn on Sundays and we had a good day in Jesus. Now, we don't try to do a crummy job. We work. Some of you have noticed that. Not all of you, but some of you have. So go to church every Sunday. I know we go on vacation some. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about rooting down in your local church and showing up week after week after week after week. And then also this. Serve in your church. You need to give yourself away. We should have no shortage of people who volunteer at our church. From security, to parking lot, to coffee, to greeters, to worship team, to ushers, you name it. We should have no shortage of this. Nursery, we should have no shortage. Because God hardwired us to give. And science even says that we are more psychologically healthy when we are giving rather than being consumers. I've noticed over 23 years of full-time ministry that there have been a lot of folks who got really cynical and it led to their bitterness. And many of these folks never gave. They were just consumers. Consumers. And when you live that way, I can't be good enough for you. Jeremy and Denise and them can't be good enough for you. Our greeters can't be good enough for you. And Jesus can't be good enough for you. So I'm going to ask you, serve. Serve. I also want you commend to you, maybe I should say that, don't want you to feel like I'm controlling you, Um, people are sensitive about that, involve yourself in a community group, give yourself to community, church is not about church services, if all we do is faithful Sunday morning attendance, that's not enough, we've got to be mixing our lives with other believers, knowing their stories, letting them know our stories, Carrying their burdens with them. Being annoyed by them. Annoying them. All of us need these relationships in the church. This is where the New Testament says Jesus is really seen visibly. Really seen visibly. In how we love and treat one another. And so behind me there's an, e- there's an email. Should be an email. Tanya, if you want to get involved, is that... A shadow, or is that an image on the screen? Is that an image that is part of our graphic? That's really weird. Okay, so um, 
Um, there we go. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> a head with no eyes. See what we did there? Um, so, Tanya, Tanya, st- Tanya, wave at us. Stand up. Wave at Tanya. Clarence, stand up. She's his better half. Um, he's the brains of the outfit. All, those two help me manage all of our community groups. If you want to be involved in a community group, see them, email her, Tanya, T-O-N-Y-A at RenewalMemphis.com. We can get you plugged in. We can recommend group for you to go to. You can try out groups. You can say, whoa, those kids are bananas. I'm going to go to this group over here. So that's totally cool. I also want to commend this to you. Immerse your children in church. I am seeing many families, and I say this with no malice or intended disrespect. It may hurt a little bit. It may sting. But I believe this with all of my heart. I am seeing families make the grave error of church just being a cosmetic addition to their kids' lives. Your kids need to grow up in church. Now, I know there are lots of kids with stories of crazy church that sent them way away from God. And I was around that too. Remember, my dad's a preacher. So I grew up in church. I saw the dark underbelly of church. But here's what I also experienced. Because I was always there, I remember back when I was a child of those holy moments that were filled with awe that I can't forget. When I was six and 13, and I was a knuckle-headed 15-year-old, I remember moments. There weren't that many because my heart was so hard. But there were moments where my heart was touched by the resurrected Jesus. And I can't ever forget that. And that has been really the foundation of my faith in Jesus. And we've got so many kids who miss so much. And I'm begging you, friends, immerse your children in the church of Jesus Christ. Immerse them. Participate in the elective opportunities that we offer. We don't do a bunch of stuff. We're not a program-driven church. We're not going to be. That's not what we are. We're community-driven. But we are going to do things at times, like we've got a couple of family movie nights planned for this fall. We've got some other things planned that we're going to be doing. We had a worship night here last Friday night that was amazing, amazing. I had a rough, rough day, and I just felt washed by the Spirit all night as I worshiped. Participate in those, my friends. No condemnation if you're not there. You don't have to apologize to me Sunday morning if you miss a worship night. But I'm telling you, give your life to the church. And last thing, be patient. Because transformation, most of the time, is not going to be this ecstatic experience at the end of a church service. It's going, you're going to be on a spiritual continuum. And you're not going to feel anything for a long, long time. And you're going to look back over your shoulder and you're going to say, whoa, I remember when I was addicted to that and couldn't stop doing this. And I remember how much of a flaming gossip I was. Ugh, gross. And I'm different now. I remember how cynical I was and now how open-hearted I am to Jesus. That thing, that just doesn't happen overnight. That happens as you immerse yourself in the body, as you're developing relationships with holy people. And you're saying, hey, would you... Would you show me how to be a husband? Just show me, man. I don't know what I'm doing. I think my wife's about to leave me. Show me how to be a husband. Show me how to be a wife. Show me. Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for your mercy. 
I thank you for your grace. Lord, I beg you to do such a deep work in our church that every single person here is totally entranced by the glory of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, and the riches of the kingdom of God. Help us, Jesus. Our hearts often wander from you. So many times, even in my life, Jesus, the things of this world are more beautiful to my eyes than you are. And you are so merciful and gracious to draw me back to you. Help us, Jesus. We are all sojourners in a very broken world. God, I pray for those people who are bearing heavy sorrows right now. Lost jobs, sick bodies, broken hearts. I pray, Jesus, that you would give them a strong sense that you are with them because you are. Help them to really believe that you love them and cherish them and they are not far from you. It may feel that way, but they are not far from you. I bless your saints in the name of Jesus. I thank you for them. In your name, amen.